Welcome back to the Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast, all about constructing your career in neurology. I'm your host, Sarah Schaefer from the Yale School of Medicine. We are going to pick up right where we left off on academic contract negotiation. If you haven't yet listened to part one in which we discuss the elements of an academic employment contract, I encourage you to go back and listen. For part two, we will be talking more about the negotiating side of things. We have our three guests with us. We have Louise McCullough, Professor and Chair of Neurology at the University of Texas, Houston, and Chief of Neurology at Memorial Hermann Hospital. Lauren Sansing, Associate Professor of Neurology at Yale, and Karen Davila, Board Certified Healthcare Attorney at the Florida Healthcare Law Firm. Louise, tell us what the process is for negotiation of a contract. What are the actual steps? Meeting with applicants, offers and counteroffers, approval by the chair and other people that people should expect. Great. And usually it starts on our end with, okay, we need another physician or we need this particular research niche. We'll ask the institution if we can recruit. And then usually an ad will go out. We don't tend to use many search firms. We have a UT website and sometimes it's just word of mouth or recruiting from within your own fellows or your own residents. Um, but the first thing that usually happens is uh, ad is posted. You apply for that ad as an applicant. You may look at these websites. There's sites on the AAN. Um, they hear from word of mouth. And you apply. And there may also be a recruiter involved, depending on what sort of venue you're going into. And then you apply for the job. You meet usually with the either division chief. You usually meet with the chair. Things have been a little bit different in the era of COVID where we're doing a lot more interviewing online because of travel restrictions and surges. So we have people that are getting hired. We're actually just hired one that we have not actually seen in person, which is very, very different kind of model. So um, usually you meet with the applicants. Traditionally, when people are looking and they're really interested in the job and they're interested in you, then you have a site visit where you meet other faculty. And that's also a very good fact-finding kind of time for an applicant to, you know, ask, uh, you know, well, how is the culture here? How have you done here? What are some of the positives? What are some of the drawbacks of this institution? That can be very helpful for an applicant. Then usually uh, you will, if it's mutually amenable and you seem like a good fit for the institution and the institution is interested in you, then usually will come a offer letter. We will often get a pro forma offer letter in the request to recruit and then do a formal offer letter. Sometimes people will come back with counter offers. Personally, that is difficult for like a state institution like UT because once the contract has kind of gone through the dean, you have to kind of do everything all over again if you're going to negotiate. So my own practice and style is to be very transparent upfront and say, this is what your job is going to be. This is, you know, what your compensation is going to be. This is the amount of research or startup support. This is, you know, my commitment for a research coordinator. I try and get those all into the original offer letter so we don't have to go back and forth. And then once they've seen it and approved it, they sign it and then you join us as faculty. Sounds easy. <laughs> the negotiation should kind of be done before 
the formal offer letter comes out. That's where you meet with the chair or the person hiring you and say, you know, I really need a 50% research coordinator for the first three years. And that goes into your offer letter. But that discussion should really come up, you know, during in face, face-to-face meetings. So Karen, where do you advise your clients to start when they're approaching this process? And what are some strategies for successful negotiation? Exactly what Louise said. The very, the, the, when you're meeting, that's when you should be negotiating uh, already. Um, so negotiation starts during those first meetings. But to get there, you ought to think very carefully about what your needs are. So every candidate is different and has different priorities. Um, and if you know, for example, that you need to stay in the area for some long period of time, consideration about whether the agreement will restrict you or not allow that, not allow you to practice in the area uh, is pretty significant. And so letting the uh, chair that you're discussing it with know is pretty important. In terms of success. Again, if you haven't started there, it is a bit of an uphill battle. So having said that, um, when you get the offer letter, it may feel like there is nothing you can negotiate, but there still is an opportunity to do it in many cases, particularly where it is a non-substantive point for the university, but may be substantive for you. So uh, the only other thing I would say is I would I would step back even further from um, a given a particular offer and think about whether what what other offers there are out there for you at the moment. So do you have several opportunities that you're considering? Uh, are you doing a side-by-side comparison of those and evaluating the relative merits of each based upon your priorities? So again, you put your priorities filter across that and determine which one is is optimal for you. And then you don't try to negotiate every single point that you are concerned about. Some of what I've noticed in academic contracting is a lot is done by faith, faith in the university, faith, faith in knowing that the university will treat you fairly when the time comes, if anything should arise that requires you to sit across the table again and discuss uh, your performance or whatever. And uh, much of it will not be in front of you in the form of the contract. So you have to really, to some extent, identify your priorities and then focus on those, but not on everything because you won't be able to get everything you want. Excellent advice. We're going to go through some of that nitty gritty a little bit later. Lauren, as a researcher, you did mention this a little bit earlier, but I'd like your advice on negotiating from that perspective. What types of things should be on the minds of clinician scientists when negotiating their contracts, both early in their career when they may not have as much grant support and later? Yeah, they, it, those issues really, in my mind, fall into two big buckets. One bucket is is your time. So how much time will be protected for research when you have funding? And probably most importantly, how much time will you be protected when you're just starting out and you don't have funding yet, but you're you know motivated and and the institution is is investing in you and investing that in that sort of gamble that you're likely to get funded because of your track record and your mentorship and and the the fit and the research question. And then the other big bucket is 
is resources. So whether that's space or startup money to buy equipment or to hire team members, that's another really important thing to, to think about. So in, in terms of time, there's some standards for what's kind of expected. You know, if you're, if you're expected to go for a, a career development award that's going to require 75% of your time once you get it, it's unlikely that you'll be successful if you start out with, you know, only a small amount of your time being protected. You really need at least half your time or more dedicated to research. Otherwise, you're going to get off track. You're not going to be as productive as you're going to need to be to be successful. And then in terms of negotiating money, space and, and, and hard money to hire people or buy equipment, the amounts are really variable across institutions. And so it's hard to compare like a dollar amount from one place to a dollar amount in the other when you have to really think about, well, what's already existing? So if, if your research relies a lot on um, particular equipment and you go to a place where that equipment is available in a core facility, so you don't have to buy any of it, you don't have to pay their service contracts, um, and you can use it, then that's that's going to make it, have a big impact on how much money you're going to need to get started compared to if you're going to a place where you actually have to buy expensive equipment and take on the service contracts and hire people to run it. So I think it's really important to think about what your your research team and your research program needs, what's available at the institution versus what you're going to have to buy, and then set up and, and really put together your spreadsheets at, for each place that you're considering and figure out how much money you would need to really be successful. But you have to put in that legwork to understand what, you know, what each dollar amount, how far that those dollars will really take you in each institution. That's excellent advice. Thank you. Karen, you mentioned some of the little things that might be important to somebody, such as office space or moving expenses, but that might not be as spelled out in a contract or or might be something that you feel is a little bit too small scale to worry about or prioritize in the negotiation? Do you have any experience with the negotiation of these types of things that you want to share? And how would you advise your our listeners about whether to prioritize these types of small scale things? Yes, I have experience negotiating on uh, on behalf of candidates, things as small as, you know, where they're going to be located. And uh, office space and scribes are a common part of that conversation. The bigger things that you mentioned in this kind of the extras are moving expenses and bonuses. Typically, moving expenses are going to be covered by university policy, and so it's difficult to get an allocation toward moving expenses unless it's already set forth in some standard uh, policy, and typically it would be capped. Bonuses, uh, sign-on bonuses, again, I haven't seen one recently in the context of academic contracting. To the extent any of these things are important or critical to you, and I'll, I'll give an example. If you have physical mobility issues, knowing where your office space is going to be and having an allocation of office space in the area where you will spend much of your time is probably going to be more important to you than somebody else. Um, so it really not nothing is too small scale, provided you don't overwhelm the university with 
100 demands because most universities are going to think that, that will, that's indicative of a person who may be difficult to, to manage or, or have too many demands. And how do you advise your clients about non-compete clauses? I've heard some whispers about whether they are actually truly binding. What's your take on them? Okay. So non-compete clauses are one of those clauses that fall under what I used the term earlier, restrictive covenants. So the restrictive covenants are typically non-compete, non-solicitation. You might have non-disparagement, which is you can't say anything bad about the university. In terms of the non-compete clauses, what this does is it prevents you from entering into any business arrangement that is in competition with the work that is done at the university. And in most states, they are enforceable, but this is a state law-specific thing. In Florida, for example, there are some rebuttable presumptions, which means the courts will give deference to and will respect these and, and allow enforcement of restrictive covenants, provided they are not overly broad and don't prevent the person from practicing their trade. So in the case of medicine, typically uh, there is a durational component and a geographic component. Durational component is a restrictive covenant or a non, you can't compete for a period of two years after termination. That is typically enforceable in Florida. And then the question is, what's the geographic limitation? So if you're in South Florida where everything's condensed and there are lots of hospitals, you can't try to restrict the individual from practicing medicine for a full 25 mile radius. Typically that would be difficult to enforce, but in a, in um, other settings, it may be uh, enforceable. And where have you seen contracts go wrong for applicants? Have you seen physicians being taken advantage of because of things that were not found in their contract? You did talk about trust with the academic medical center and things that are unsaid or things that may have been conveyed verbally, but not in writing. Most often, I think where these go wrong is uh, when you say things weren't found in the contract, that kind of makes me laugh because I thought you meant originally that they that the applicant didn't read and see that in the contract but i think what you meant is that they weren't weren't included in the contract in any event the worst thing that an applicant can do is not read the contract and i would tell you if you're not familiar with contracts you really ought to have an attorney look at the contract with you and make sure you understand uh every clause in it Things that are particularly challenging are going to be like the productivity model for somebody is, who's heavily clinical. Um, that is a particular challenge, even for very sophisticated folks who understand how the model works, understanding the MGMA RVUs and how much is paid per RVU and the percentiles. All of that's very complicated. And so if you are on an RVU model, make sure you understand that. Make sure you understand if they're going to take back money or withhold money if you don't hit your RVU threshold and how much you're going to make for every RVU or productivity unit that you that you bill in excess of your threshold. That's going to be important to know. Other than that, the restrictive covenants, um, and again, non-competes, those are very challenging. If you, if you have said at the front end, oh, that'll never happen, I'm not worried about that. Because the reality is you have to anticipate the unanticipated. I'm going to switch to a bit of a thorny topic that was mentioned briefly earlier 
in terms of comparing contracts and wondering about comparing contracts privately versus comparing contracts with the places that you're actually looking at. Louise, could you tell us from a chair's point of view how you feel about applicants using multiple offers against each other? I've heard, you know, junior faculty who wanted to negotiate from the strongest possible position, but also there's the argument that you don't want to burn bridges by saying, well, this other place has given me this offer. What do you have to say about that? (laughs) What are your thoughts on all of this? I think it goes back to that trust and do you want to be at the place you're looking at? If you trust the administration, whether it's the chair or the dean, then, you know, nobody wants to recruit somebody who's going to leave in two years. It makes no sense for anyone. So I always think it's better to go in with full transparency. Now, we also have a lot of limitations in what we can even put in offer letters. This is state university. They keep them very boilerplate and very not detailed. And that can be a concern for people if they don't know me that I will say, yes, I will give you a 50% research coordinator for three years. They don't even put a lot of that into the contract. So what I'll usually do is follow up with an email. As we discussed, this is my confirmation, blah, blah, blah. Just because the state often doesn't like those sort of details in the offer letter. It's something very unique to the University of Texas. And also something very unique to us is we don't have non-compete clauses. You know, I think they've made the decision that if somebody wants to leave, then it's probably best that they leave. And that can get a little bit into issues about using contracts against each other. We're here in Houston at the Texas Medical Center, which is the largest medical institution in the entire world. So there's 54 institutions. So all you have to do is change your parking spot and you can get a new employer. So it is a very competitive market, but I think to avoid some of those kind of bartering situations. They have made it uh, so people do not sign non-competes here. I think if you're getting the things you need, then negotiating for more is great, but you have to understand there's a point where you put in, oh, do I get a scribe? Do I get a resident every day? You know, do I get every, you know, weekend off? Do I ever have to take call? Sometimes these do kind of like get a bit of a red flag. And it's interesting, negotiation has changed a lot, even in the past six years since I've been chair, where people seem to have gotten the message that they can pretty much ask for anything. And I think that can work against you because there's probably other candidates. And if you come across as like very demanding in this process, then it might turn them off by saying, oh, boy, this person's really high maintenance, you know. So, but you do have to have trust, trust. And if you don't have that trust, then you shouldn't be going to that job anyway. So you touched on this a little bit. What level of flexibility do you even have uh, with regards to negotiation? What aspects of the contract are versus are not negotiable at an academic medical center where, as you said, a huge portion of the contract might actually just be a boilerplate from the institution. Exactly. So you do have flexibility, but, you know, I always tell the faculty and faculty that, you know, have been here for a while or faculty that need something or a new hire, just tell me what you need to be successful. I want you to be successful, right? Because that makes the department successful. So if there's barriers to your success that, oh, I'm spending too much time in clinic, I need help making templates for Epic, 
oh, I need a scribe. I will usually, you know, say, absolutely. If this makes you more efficient, then I'm all for it. And especially you want to get the, either the protected time or the clinical support or the equipment, as Lauren mentioned, you need to have that to be successful. So those are important things to ask for. If it's going to make you more efficient and more successful, then most chairs will say absolutely yes. And Karen, jumping off of that boilerplate question, in an academic contract world where a lot of the contracts are rather boilerplate, what do you see your role in helping with academic contract negotiation for your clients? I see my role as a client educator, uh, quite frankly. More than anything, I review the agreement with the clients, make sure they understand what it says. If they have questions about it, then we set, we make notes of those things. And the other thing is, you know, and I didn't say this earlier, in an academic contract uh, negotiation, I am not always the face of the negotiation. In fact, I, I'm rarely the face of the negotiation, but I equip my clients with the information that they can negotiate the important points of the agreement. So again, I would summarize my role by saying I educate the client and then I talk to them about what they can and are, are likely to be successful with and how to be successful with those requests. Does anybody have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners who are embarking on their contract negotiation journey? I think, I think uh, really look for transparency. Don't ask for more than you need, but definitely get a fair and equitable deal that's going to help you be successful. And I think those are very important to advocate for going in. You know, that protected time and administrative support and equipment, those are those are big things. And but I think go with your gut, go with your feel. If you go to a job and you're like, yeah, I really like this program, people seem happy, the faculty are saying they're supported, then you know do you negotiate, do you fall on your sword for a scribe? Probably not. Yeah, I'll just add that there's so many intangibles in this whole process. So going to a place, if you're a researcher, is the mentorship there that's really going to help you succeed? Does the department seem really invested? Do your faculty and colleagues seem, as, as Louis said, happy and, and well-supported? And then know that when you're going through the negotiations, people, you're building colleagues and you're building relationships. So it's, absolutely important that you ask for the things that you need, but you also want to make sure that you're not being too demanding and then, and you're not sort of going to be starting out with a, on the wrong foot and, and make sure that the, your chiefs and chairs are, are ready to help you succeed. So some of that in the negotiations could be like, can you introduce me to other potential mentors? Or can I talk to someone at the CTSA to sort of understand what the clinical research coordinator support may be. And if they're willing to work with you and, and help make those introductions, that's a that's a great sign. And that doesn't cost them anything but time. But if people are willing to put in their time, that's uh, really important for your early success. The only other thing I wanted to add uh, is that I do lecture on contracting, uh, employment contracting for physicians. 
Uh, frequently, I do have a re recorded uh, YouTube video on the topic. You're welcome to look that up and see if you can, if that is helpful to you on the more mechanical side of it. But I would echo the sentiments of Louise and Lauren that a lot of this is building relationships from the moment you make that first impression or meet with folks to the time you sign the contract. All of that, you're being evaluated for what kind of a a member of the faculty you'll be, and uh, you should be evaluating those on the other side for how how you feel about whether you're building a good relationship that you can rely on for the foreseeable future. Thank you so much to everybody. I learned so much in the last few minutes here with you, and I'm sure that this will be invaluable to many of our listeners. This podcast is not recorded as an official podcast of any institution or organization. The podcast is unfunded. Opinions are those of the individual participants. Music by Audrey Nath. Artwork by Shivani Ghoshal. Want more content like this? Be sure to subscribe to the Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast on all available platforms. To hear more about constructing your career in neurology, follow us on Twitter at NeuroBolts and on Facebook to stay up to date on new content and give us feedback on what you want to hear and tell your friends. Thanks for joining us.